0: Section 6 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 2, From the Death of Alexander I until the Death of Alexander III, 1825-1894, to 1894, by Shimon Dubnov. Translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by SS Kim, Seoul, South Korea. Chapter 14 Compulsory Enlightenment and Increased Oppression Part 3 6. The Ritual Murder Trial of Veliz. The ordinary persecutions under which the Jews in Russia were groaning were accompanied by afflictions of an extraordinary kind. The severest among these were the ritual murder trials, which became of frequent occurrence tending to deepen the medieval gloom of that period. True, ritual murder cases had occurred during the reign of Alexander I, but it was only under Nicholas that they assumed a malign and dangerous form. In the year 1816, shortly before Passover, a dead body was found in the vicinity of Grodno, and identified as that of the four-year-old daughter of a Grodno resident, Mary Adamovich. Rumors were spread among the superstitious Christian populace to the effect that the girl had been killed for ritual purposes, and the police swayed by these rumors set about to find the culprits among the Jews. Suspicion fell on a member of the Grodno Kahal, Shalom Lapin, whose house adjoined that of the Adamovich family. The only evidence against him were a hammer and pike found in his house. A sergeant named Sabitsky, a converted Jew, appeared as a material witness before the commission of inquiry and delivered himself of a statement full of ignorant trash which was intended to show that Christian blood is exactly what is needed according to the Jewish religion. Here the witness referred to the Bible story of the Exodus and to two mythical authorities, the philosopher Rossier and the prophet Azariah. He further disposed that every rabbi is obliged to satisfy the whole kahal under his jurisdiction by smearing with same with christian blood the lintels of every house on the first day of the feast of passover prompted by greed and by the desire to distinguish himself the sergeant declared himself ready to substantiate his testimony from jewish literature if the chief government will grant him the necessary assistance The results of this secret investigation were laid before the governor of Grodno and reported by him to St. Petersburg. In reply, Alexander I issued a rescript in February 1817, ordering that the secret investigation be cut short and the murderer be found out, intimating thereby that search be made for the criminal and not for the tenets of the Jewish religion. However. All efforts to discover the culprit failed, and the case was dismissed. This favorable issue was in no small measure due to the endeavors of the deputies of the Jewish people, in particular to Zonenberg, the deputy from Grodno. These deputies, who were present in St. Petersburg at the time, addressed themselves to Kolitzin, the Minister of Ecclesiastic Affairs. PROTESTING AGAINST the RITUAL MURDER LIBEL The trial at Grodno and the ritual murder accusations, which simultaneously cropped up in the Kingdom of Poland, made the minister of ecclesiastic affairs realize that there is in the western region a dangerous tendency of making the Jews the scapegoats for every mysterious murder case and of fabricating lawsuits of the medieval variety by bringing popular superstition into play Golitsyn, a christian pietist who was nevertheless profoundly averse to narrow ecclesiastic fanaticism decided to strike at the root of this superstitious legend which was disgracing poland in a period of decay and was about to fall as a dark stain upon russia He succeeded in impressing this conviction upon his like-minded sovereign Alexander I. In the same month in which the UK's Concerning the Society of Israelitish Christians was published, Golitsyn sent out the following circular to the governors, dated March 6, 1817. In view of the fact that in several of the provinces acquired from Poland, cases still occur in which The Jews are falsely accused of murdering Christian children for the alleged purpose of obtaining blood. His Imperial Majesty, taking into consideration that similar accusations have on previously numerous occasions been refuted by impartial investigations and royal charters, has been graciously pleased to convey to those at the head of the government his sovereign will that henceforward, The Jews shall not be charged with murdering Christian children without any evidence and purely as a result of the superstitious belief that they are in need of Christian blood. One might have thought that this emphatic rescript would suffice to put a stop to the efforts of ignorant adventurers to resuscitate the bloody myth, and for several years indeed the sinister agitation kept quiet. But towards the end of Alexander's reign, it came to life again and gave rise to the monstrous Veliz case. In the year 1823, on the first day of the Christian Passover, a boy of three years, Theodor Emelyanov, the son of a Russian soldier, disappeared in the city of Veliz in the government of Vitebsk. Ten days later, the child's body was found in a swamp beyond the town. Stepped all over and covered with wounds. The medical examination and the preliminary investigation were influenced by the popular belief that the child had been tortured to death by the Jews. This belief was fostered by two Christian fortune-tellers, a prostitute beggar woman called Mary Terentieva and a half-witted old maid by the name of Yeremia Yeva, who by way of divination made the parents of the child believe that its death was due to the Jews. At the judicial inquiry, Tarentieva implicated two of the most prominent Jews of Belize, the merchant Shumerika Berlin and Yevzik Zetlin, a member of the local town council. Protracted investigation failed to substantiate the fabrications of Tarentieva and in the autumn of 1884 the supreme court of the government of vitebsk rendered the following verdict to leave the accidental death of the soldier boy to the will of god to declare all the jews against whom the charge of murder has been brought on mere surmises free from all suspicion to turn over the soldier woman terentieva for her profligate conduct to a priest for repentance However, in view of the exceptional gravity of the crime, the court recommended to the gubernatorial administration to continue its investigation. Despite the verdict of the court, the dark forces among the local population, prompted by hatred of the Jews, bent all their efforts on putting the investigation on a wrong track. The low mercenary Tarantiba became their ready tool when in september eighteen twenty five alexander i was passing through valise she submitted a petition to him complaining about the failure of the authorities to discover the mother of the little theodore whom she unblushingly designated as her own child and declared to have been tortured to death by the jews the Tsar, entirely oblivious of his ukase of eighteen seventeen instructed the white Russian governor-general Kovansky to start a new rigorous inquiry. The imperial order gave the governor-general, who was a Jew-hater and a believer in the hideous libel, unrestricted scope for his anti-Semitic instincts. He entrusted the conduct of the new investigation to a subaltern by the name of Strakov, a man of the same ilk, conferring upon him the widest possible powers. On his arrival in Véliz, Strakow first of all arrested Terentieva and subjected her to a series of cross-examinations during which he endeavored to put her on what he considered the desirable track. Stimulated by the prosecutor, the prostitute managed to concoct a regular crime romance. She deposed that she herself had participated in the crime, having lured little Theodor into the homes of Zetlin and Berlin. In Berlin's house, and later on in the synagogue, a crowd of Jews of both sexes had subjected the child to the most horrible tortures. The boy had been stabbed and butchered and rolled about in a barrel. The blood squeezed out of him had been distributed on the spot among those present. Thereupon proceeded to soak pieces of linen in it and to pour it out in bottles. All these tortures had been perpetrated in her own presence and with the active participation both of herself and the Christian servant girls of the two families. It may be added that Tarantieva did not make this statement at one time but at different intervals inventing fresh details at each new examination, and often getting muddled in a story. The implicated servant girls at first denied their share in the crime, but yielding to external pressure, like Tarantyeva, they too were sent for frequent admonition to a local priest called Tarashkevich, a ferocious anti-Semite. They were gradually led to indoors, the depositions of the principal material witness. On the strength of these indictments, Strakov placed the implicated Jews under arrest at first two highly esteemed ladies, Slava Berlin and Hanna Zetlin, later on their husbands and relatives, and finally a number of other Jewish residents of Valise. In all, 42 people were seized, put in chains and thrown into jail. The prisoners were examined with uh, vengeance. They were subjected to the old-fashioned judicial procedure which approached closely the method of medieval torture. The prisoners denied their guilt with indignation and, when confronted with Tarantieva, denounced her vehemently as a liar. The excruciating cross-examinations brought some of the prisoners to the verge of madness. But as far as Strakov was concerned, the hysterical fits of the women, the angry speeches of the men, the remarks of some of the accused, such as, I shall tell everything but only to the Tsar, served in his eyes as evidence of the Jew's guilt. In his reports, he assured his superior Kovansky that he had gotten the track of a monstrous crime perpetrated by a whole kahal, with the assistance of several Christian women who had been led astray by the Jews. In communicating his findings to St. Petersburg, the white Russian governor-general presented the case as a crime committed on religious grounds. In reply, he received the fatal resolution of Emperor Nicholas, dated August 16, 1828, to the following effect whereas the above occurrence demonstrates that the Zid make wicked use of the religious tolerance accorded to them. Therefore, as a warning and as an example to others, let the Jewish schools, the synagogues of Belize, be sealed up until Father orders and let services be forbidden, whether in them or near them. The imperial resolution was couched in the fierce language of the new reign, which had begun in the meantime. It rose in the bloody midst of the Valise affair. The fatal consequences of this synchronism were not limited to the Jews of Valise. Judging by the contents and the harsh wording of the resolution, Nicholas I was convinced at that time of the truth of the ritual murder libel. The mysterious and unloved tribe rose before the vision of the new Tsar as a band of cannibals and evil-doers. This sinister notion can be traced in the conscription statute which was then in the course of preparation in St. Petersburg and was soon afterwards to stir Russian Jewry to its depths, dooming their little ones to martyrdom while punishment was to be meted out to the entire jewish population of russia the fate of the veliz community was particularly tragic it was subjected to the terrors of a unique state of siege the whole community was placed under suspicion all the synagogues were shut up as if they were dens of thieves and the hapless jews could not even assemble in prayer to pour out their hearts before god all business was at a standstill the shops were closed and gloomy faces flitted shyly across the streets of the doomed city the stern command from saint petersburg ordering that the case be positively probed to the bottom and that the culprits be apprehended gladdened only the hearts of Strakov, the chairman of the commission of inquiry who was now free to do as he pleased he spread out the net of inquiry in ever wider circles terentieva and the other female witnesses who were fed well while in prison and expected not only amnesty but also remuneration for their services gave more and more vent to their imagination they recollected and revealed before the commission of inquiry a score of religious crimes which they alleged had been perpetrated by the jews prior to the valise affair such as the murder of children in suburban inns the desecration of church utensils and similar misdeeds the commission was not slow in communicating the new revelation to the tsar who followed vigilantly the development in the case but the commission had evidently overreached itself The Tsar began to suspect that there was something wrong in this endlessly growing tangle of crimes. In October 1827, he attached to the reports of the commission the following resolution. It is absolutely necessary to find out who those unfortunate children were. This ought to be easy if the whole thing is not a miserable lie. His belief in the guilt of the Jews had evidently been shaken. In its endeavors to make up for the lack of substantial evidence, the commission, personified by Kovansky, put itself in communication with the governors of the pale, directing them to obtain information concerning all local ritual murder cases in past years. The effect of these inquiries were to revive the Gruden Affair of 1818, which had been left to oblivion. A certain convert by the name of Gdalinski from the townlet of Bobovnia, in the government of Minsk declared before the commission of inquiry that he was ready to point out the description of the ritual murder ceremony in a secret Hebrew work. When the book was produced and the incriminated passage translated, it was found that it referred to the Jewish rites of slaughtering animals. The Apostate the court, red-handed, confessed that he had turned informer in the hope of making money and was by imperial command sent into the army. The confidence of St. Petersburg in the activity of the Belize Commission of Inquiry vanished more and more. Kovansky was notified that His Majesty the Emperor, having observed that the Commission bases its deductions mostly on surmises, by attaching significance to the fits and gestures of the incriminated during the examinations is full of apprehension lest the commission carried away by zeal and anti-jewish prejudice act with a certain amount of bias and protract the case to no purpose soon afterwards in eighteen thirty the case was taken out of the hands of the commission which had become entangled in a mesh of lies Strakov had died in the meantime and was turned over to the Senate. Weighed down by the nightmare proportions of the material which the Vélez Commission had managed to pile up, the members of the 5th Department of the Senate, which was charged with the case, were inclined to announce the verdict of guilty and to sentence the convicted Jews to deportation to Siberia with the application of the Nout and whip. 1831 in the higher court the plenary sessions of the senate there was a disagreement the majority voting guilty while three senators referring to the case of 1817 were in favor of setting the prisoners at liberty but keeping them at the same time under police surveillance in 1834 the case reached the highest court of the empire the council of state and here for the first time the real facts came to light Truth found its champion in the person of the aged statesman Mordivinov, who owned some estates near veliz and being well acquainted with the jews of the town was roused to indignation by the false charges concocted against them In his capacity as president of the Department of Civil and Ecclesiastic Affairs of the Council of State, Bordivinov, after sifting the evidence carefully, succeeded in a number of sessions to demolish completely the Babel Tower of Lies erected by Strachov and Kovansky, and to adduce proofs that the Governor-General, blinded by anti-Jewish prejudice, had misled the government by his communications. The Department of Civil and Ecclesiastic Affairs was convinced by the arguments of Mordevinov and other champions of the truth, and handed down a decision that the accused Jews be set at liberty and reorded for their innocent sufferings, and that the Christian women informers be deported to Siberia. The plenary meetings of the Council of State concurred in the decision of the Department, rejecting only the clause providing for the reward of the sufferers. The verdict of the Council of State was submitted to the Tsar and received his endorsement on January 18, 1835. It read as follows. The Council of State, having carefully considered all the circumstances of this complex and involved case, finds that the depositions of the material female witnesses terentieva Maximova, and kozlovska containing as they do numerous contradictions and absurdities and lacking all positive evidence and indubitable conclusions cannot be admitted as legal proof to convict the jews of the grave crimes imputed to them and therefore renders the following decision 1. The Jews accused of having killed the soldier boy, Emelianov and of other similar deeds, which are implied in the village trial, no indictment whatsoever having been found against them, shall be freed from further judgment and inquiry. 2. The material witnesses, the peasant woman, Terentieva, the soldier woman, Maximova, and the Shakhtar woman, Kozlovska, having been convicted of uttering libels, which they have not in the least been able to corroborate, shall be exiled to Siberia for permanent residence. 3. The peasant maid Yeremieva, having posed among the common people as a soothsayer, shall be turned over to a priest for admonition. After attaching his signature to this verdict, Nicholas I added in his own handwriting, the following characteristic resolution, which was not to be made public, while sharing the view of the Council of State that, in this case, owing to the vagueness of the legal deductions, no other decision than the one embodied in the opinion confirmed by me could have been reached. I deem it, however, necessary to add that I do not have, and indeed cannot have, the inner conviction that the murder has not been committed by the Jews. Numerous examples of similar murders go to show that among the Jews there probably exist fanatics or sectarians who consider Christian blood necessary for their rights. This appears the more possible since unfortunately even among us Christians, there sometimes exist such sects which are no less horrible and incomprehensible. In a word, I do not for a moment think that this custom is common to all Jews, but I do not deny the possibility that there may be among them fanatics just as horrible as among us Christians. Having taken this idea into his head, Nicholas I refused to sign the second decision of the Council of State, which was closely allied with the verdict that all governors be instructed to be guided in the future by the ukase of 1817 forbidding to stir up ritual murder cases from prejudice only while rejecting this prejudice in its full-fledged shape the tsar acknowledged it in part in somewhat attenuated form towards the end of january 1835 an imperial ukase reached the city of veliz ordering the liberation of the exculpated jews reopening of the synagogues which had been sealed since 1826, and the handing back to the Jews of the Holy Scrolls, which had been confiscated by the police. The dungeon was now ready to give up its inmates, whose strength had been sapped by the long confinement, while several of them had died during the imprisonment. The synagogues, which had not been allowed to resound its moans of the martyrs, were now opened for the prayers of the liberated the state of siege which for nine long years had been throttling the city was at last taken off the terror which had haunted the ostracized community came to an end a new leaf was added to the annals of jewish martyrdom one of the gloomiest in spite of its happy finale seven the misty of affair The ritual murder trials did not exhaust the extraordinary afflictions of Nicholas' reign. There were cases of wholesale chastisement inflicted on more tangible grounds when misdeeds of a few individuals were puffed up into communal crimes and visited cruelly upon entire communities. The conscription horrors of that period, when the Kahals were degraded to police agencies for capturing recruits, had bred the informing disease among the Jewish communities. They produced the type of professional informer or mozo, who blackmailed the Kahal authorities of his town by threatening to disclose their abuses, the absconding of candidates for the army, and various irregularities in carrying out the conscription, and in this way extorted silence money from them. These scoundrels made life intolerable, and there were occasions when the people took the law into their own hands and secretly dispatched the most objectionable among them. A case of this kind came to light in the government of Podolia in 1836. In the town Novaya Ushitsa, two Moses named Oxman and Schwarz, who had terrorized the Jews of the whole province, were found dead. Rumors had it that the one was killed in the synagogue and the other on the road to the town. The Russian authorities regarded the crime as the collective work of the local Jewish community, or rather of several neighboring Jewish communities, which had perpetrated this wicked deed by the verdict of their own tribunal. About 80 Kahal elders and other prominent Jews of Ushitsa and adjacent towns including two rabbis were put on trial the case was submitted to a court martial which resolved to subject the guilty to an exemplary punishment twenty jews were sentenced to hard labor and to penal military service with the preliminary punishment by spies ruten through five hundred men a like number were sentenced to be deported to siberia the rest were either acquitted or had fled from justice Many of those who ran the gauntlet died under strokes and are remembered by the Jewish people in Russia as martyrs. The scourge of informers was also responsible for the Mstislavl affair. In 1844, a Jewish crowd in the marketplace of Mstislavl, a town in the government of Mogilev, came into conflict with a detachment of soldiers who were searching for contraband goods in a Jewish warehouse the results of the fray were a few bruised jews and several broken rifles the local police and military authorities seized this opportunity to ingratiate themselves with their superiors and reported to the governor of mogilev and the commander of the garrison that the jews had organized a mutiny the local informer Briskin a converted Jew found this instant an equally convenient occasion to wreak vengeance on his former co-religionists for the contempt in which he was held by them and allowed himself to be taken into town by the official Jew Beters. In January 1844, alarming communications concerning a Jewish mutiny reached St. Petersburg. The matter was reported to the Tsar and a swift and curt resolution followed to court-martial the principal culprits implicated in this incident and in the meantime as a punishment for the turbulent demeanors of the jews of that city to take from them one recruit for every ten men once more the principles of that period were applied one for all first punishment then trial the Ukes arrived in Mistislavel on the eve of Purim and threw the Jews into consternation. During the Fest of Esther, the synagogues resounded with wailing. The city was in a state of terror. The most prominent leaders of the community were thrown into jail and had to submit to disfigurement by having half of their heads and beards shaved off. The penal recruits were hunted down without any regard to age, since, according to the Tsar's resolution, a tenth of the population had to be impressed into military service. Pending the termination of the trial, no Jew was allowed to leave the city, while natives from Mstislavl in other places were captured and conveyed to their native town. A large Jewish community was threatened with complete annihilation the jews of mistislavel through their spokesman petitioned st petersburg to wait with the penal conscription until the conclusion of the trial and endeavored to convince the central government that the local administration had misrepresented the character of the incident to save his brethren the popular champion of the interests of his people the merchant isaac zelikin of monastokina called affectionately Rabbi Itzele, journeyed to the capital. He managed to get the ear of the chief of the third section and to acquaint him with the horrors which were being perpetrated by the authorities in Mstislavl. As a result, two commissioners were dispatched from St. Petersburg in quick succession. On investigating the matter on the spot, They discovered the machinations of the overzealous officials and apostatized informers who had represented a street quarrel as an organized uprising. The new commission of inquiry, of which one of the St. Petersburg commissioners, Count Trubetskoy, was member, disclosed the fact that the Jewish community as such had had nothing whatsoever to do with what had occurred. The findings of the commission resulted in an imperial act of grace. The imprisoned Jews were set at liberty, the penal conscripts were returned from service, several local officials were put on trial, and the governor of Mogilev was severely censured. This took place in November 1844, after the Mstislavl community had for nine long months tasted the horrors of a state of siege. The synagogues were filled with Jews praising God for the relief granted to them. The community decreed to commemorate annually the day before Purim, on which the ukase inflicting severe punishment on the Jews of Mistslavl was promulgated as a day of fasting, and to celebrate the third day of the month of Kislev, on which the cruel ukase was revoked as a day of rejoicing. Had all the disasters of that era had been perpetuated in the same manner, the Jewish calendar would consist entirely of these commemorations of national misfortunes, whether in the form of ordinary persecutions or extraordinary afflictions. End of section six.